Consider a world where increasing survival rates in patients typically deemed dead on arrival could be the norm. Is dead actually dead? Is it an assumption or is it a fact? Welcome to Flatline to Lifeline with Dr. Bill Long. This podcast explores the very real potential for survival within the medical field of trauma and near-death experiences. During his 50-year career, Dr. Long and his team radically altered the approach to trauma care by applying simple principles in profound ways. We hope to educate the general public and inspire medicine worldwide to acknowledge and adopt these life-saving approaches to trauma care. Because when the need is greatest for the patient, saving time saves lives. Welcome to season two of Flatline to Lifeline. I'm your host, Will Oman, and as always, we have with us Dr. Bill Long. Dr. Long is my uncle, but he is much more than that to the hundreds of people that he has brought back from death's doorstep. Dr. Long, how are we doing today? We're doing great. Thank you. Here we are on episode three, um, and a quick recap of something that we've talked about. We've talked about the inception of the MSTT, or the Mobile Surgical Transport Team. This started in 1983. And it's born out of this overarching idea uh, that you and your team kind of came to, which was you can always quit. It takes no energy to quit. And yet as the patient, as the layperson, I want my doctor to try. We've discussed the MSTT. We've discussed the, the principle of the golden hour to stop the bleeding. We've discussed level one trauma centers. The fact that 911 wasn't universally uh, available. Uh, during the time that you started heading up the programs uh, in the Pacific Northwest. And it ultimately comes to a question of when is dead dead? You have this race against time to stop the bleeding, but a flat line doesn't necessarily mean that that life has expired. Within that, we also discuss that the battlefield is everywhere. Many of the Many of the treatments and protocols that are set forth in modern brick and mortar medicine within you know, hospitals and municipalities and in rural hospitals, they're born out of military conflict and things were set up that way. Trauma centers specifically were set up kind of as a, I guess, kind of a, as an adjunct or, or or a next level from what a MASH unit was on battlefields in Korea and Vietnam. And ultimately it goes back to that tagline of saving time saves lives. And what this MSTT did was essentially take the trauma center and the personnel involved and make them mobile, take them out of the metro area and those brick and mortar hospitals and bring them to rural hospitals that didn't have the capabilities. This was not an easy task. This involves blood component therapy, surgical equipment, monitoring equipment, vasoactive drugs, and then most importantly, the trauma center team that would all get loaded onto a helicopter. And by that, we haven't even gotten to the most important and difficult part where you're talking about credentialing and licensing and malpractice insurance and privileging at these other hospitals just to be able to render the services that you and your team can provide. So there has to be a willingness of both the receiving hospital and you guys just to get on the helicopter. Is that accurate? Very accurate. Yeah. So in this case, what we're talking about, it's a a pretty dire circumstance, as they all have been. 
And with this particular hospital and this particular call, uh, you didn't actually have an agreement in place with this rural hospital. This call was made in desperation. That's right. There was a family practitioner taking an emergency call at a hospital that had no CAT scan and one operating room, no nurse anesthetist living in the living in the community, no surgeon living within a thirty mile range of the community, and and he had a, a woman with uh, through and through a gunshot wound through her uh, right ventricle, and she basically was uh, developing what's called cardiac tamponade, blood accumulating in the pericardial sac, uh, limiting the ventricle's ability to dilate and contract. Normally, so that he recognized that he couldn't fix it because he was a family practitioner. So he called out of desperation because otherwise this person would die. She was a woman in her thirties. Wow. So we have a self-inflicted gunshot wound. And, you know, to, to go back one episode when we started talking about uh, board certification. Now this is a board certified doctor, but he's a board certified general practitioner, correct? Family practitioner, right. Family practitioner. Okay. And to be board certified, it means that you have to pass a national standard, a national standard test for a knowledge in that specialty. But there is no board certification for trauma care. This gentleman actually had the wherewithal to say, this is beyond me. Yes. And that's when he made the call. Right. And even a person who is board certified, say in open heart surgery uh, or, you know, in, in a vascular surgery, it doesn't mean that they are board certified because there isn't a board certification for trauma care. It mean it doesn't mean that they have any experience with what a trauma care situation looks like. So that's a vitally important piece of information. Yeah, but I want to make it clear that there is a, a an assumption the person who takes surgical critical care has some trauma experience, but it's not the same as being the full range of surgical techniques necessary to do you know what i call combat surgery a type of surgery to st stop the bleeding surgical critical care is it has some of the elements of it but doesn't have the complete range of it and uh, to this day there is no board certification truly in trauma surgery where the person has to you know know and demonstrate all the techniques that are available to save a life and you know for a, a critically injured trauma patient Okay, so this goes back again to level of experience and the fact that the battlefield truly is everywhere. Right. Just because you show up at the hospital's doorstep doesn't mean that the person who is attending or who is who is overseeing your case understands the intricacy of what is about to happen. Exactly. So now let's go directly to the case itself. Self-inflicted gunshot wound. The gunshot actually pierces both the heart and the liver. Well, grazes the liver, both through and through the right ventricle, right? Okay. And, you know, we'll give the spoiler alert, uh, as opposed to some of our other cases early on where you actually, where we actually dealt with failure is something to be learned from. This woman makes a full recovery uh, and is cognitively intact. Obviously, she, you know, she had to go through some things with psychological care afterwards because of the nature of how the gunshot wound occurred. But as far as a physical nature of it, you and your team were able to essentially put her back together. Yes. I would emphasize, though, that the bullet passed, grazed the liver, went through through the right ventricle, through the diaphragm, 
grazed the liver and went surprisingly and between the aorta, abdominal aorta and the inferior vena cava, hit her spine and and destroyed partially her her basically her spinal cord at that level, making her paralyzed. But no one knew that at the time. Because right at that point, her cardiovascular collapse was more important than trying to figure out whether or not she could move her extre- her lower extremities. Okay, right. Because in the notes here, it says that that the bullet actually did pierce the 12th thoracic spine. Right. And, you know, for those listening at home, number one is on the top number, you know, and as you go deeper uh, in, or larger in number, it, it travels further down the spine all the way to the coccyx. Right. So there's 12 thoracic vertebrae, seven cervical vertebrae, and five lumbar vertebrae. Lumbar yeah. being the lowest. Lowest, right. Okay. So the thoracic spine sits in the sits in the middle of the sits in the middle of the backside of the chest. Yeah, it starts at the base of the neck, started at T1 at the base of the neck, and it goes all the way down to uh, to a point somewhere between uh, the uh, the umbilicus or the belly button and these and the end of, uh, and your xiphoid process which is the, where your chest comes together to form the sternum okay now let's revisit this real quick there's no exit wound no exit wound okay well that and, and that that leads to a first part of the mystery because you can't tell you can't tell exactly where it's lodged but then the the second part of this is that as you explained before there were only family practitioners covering the ER at that time. Yeah, just one. Just one. Okay. Right. And the patient actually arrests um, yes. while on site. And again, out of necessity, out of desperation, this family practitioner happened to know of your MSTT program. There is no there is no freestanding or prior agreement you know, between these two hospitals, but luckily and planned on your part, you actually carried a Washington state uh, license to practice in the state of Washington. Well, I had been asked by the, by the uh, hospital in Vancouver, Washington, Southwest Washington, to be temporarily their med- trauma medical director until they could recruit one who had similar training or, or an experience that I did. So I had my Washington license from that standpoint. And I did some elective, but mostly emergency surgery and trauma surgery there when when asked to do so. I mean, very fortunate for this for this woman that that you happen to be there and right. and the system for the MSTT is in place. But retrospectively, uh, according to the injury severity score that you helped uh, that you helped initiate uh, the ISS, it maxes out at 75 uh, w- would be the, the most severe injury. and. She scored what a 50? 50. What does that indicate? Well, 75 basically, this, this, this score was developed by Susan Baker, largely at Johns Hopkins University many years ago. And uh, she, at that time, they didn't have uh, computers, they had desk, desk calculators. And she was trying to find, you know, the worst injury in, in, in five, six body areas. That if basically were was it additive each each inch severe injury or was it multiplicative or was it logarithmic that would lead to death and trying to predict the death based on the severity of the injury, and she can only do three at that time with the technology she had at that time. So that's why the maximum score is five is the worst score for, that's for survival. Six is uniformly fatal. 
then you could get a five for the abdomen, five for the chest, and uh, and that would be that would give you 25, 25, that would give you 50. So that was her injury severity score. Okay. I, I still don't understand the math on that, um, but perhaps in the future you can educate me. It just seems far more difficult than I'm well, capable a, of understanding. There's a, I got a book coming out called about the mathematics of trauma. And so how and the severity of trauma, how to calculate it and how, and how it became to be abuse. Because uh, it was the standard for about 25, 30 years, the injury severity score worldwide. Oh, wow. Wow. And then, then it changed from with the idea. With, it was created, uh, helped by Bill Sacco, who was a mathematician I worked with for many years. Mm -hmm. And he always talked about you should be looking at more than rentable deaths. You should be looking at unexpected survivors to see if what you did could be reduplicated so that you would get other unexpected survivors. That's where the advancement in medicine and trauma is going to occur. That follows suit with everything that we've talked about is that these white papers and the the bodies, the governing bodies that be, they want to talk about unexpected, unexpected death, whereas you want to talk about unexpected survival. And right. you want it's, to replicate that. It is laudable to have to try to prevent as many unexpected deaths as possible. That means you've got system failures. But the none of the mathematics up to that time and since then has been to sit there and say, how can you get unexpected survivors? You, first, you have, you have to calculate what is the probability of survival, which is what Sacco introduced into the mathematical world of trauma, and then, says, and then see if that can be reproduced. And that's that's that was most of my career was on that on that his philosophy. And in this particular case, on an ISS score of 50 out of the 75, the probability of her survival was less than one percent. Right. That's because she lost all of her vital signs, you know, basically at the scene en route. And by the time she arrived at the hospital, she barely had her heart rate. I got her back with a little bit of fluids. But she was basically dying in front of them, and she had basically no blood pressure, uh, had a little bit of an EKG, barely breathing, and so her that and her Glasgow coma. She was in coma at the time, from lack of blood flow to her brain. All these, all the physiological things, lead to her having that you know uh, probability of survival less than one percent. So this is at the hospital when we've made these these assessments. The interesting thing is, is that unlike many people, this family practitioner did not spend time trying to do portable x-rays to find out wh where the bullet was. He basically recognized that she was dying in front of him and the x-rays were not going to add anything to what we were what needed to be done. That's Which follows suit to what you have said earlier in season one, where the x-rays aren't necessarily the most important thing. When you're dealing with a trauma care situation, you need to check off boxes of what is going to kill you first. Exactly. Exactly. So now let's back up just a touch and go with where are we? We're in Clickitat Valley Community Hospital. Okay. It's a small rural facility. You've got a family practitioner who's on the scene. You don't have a working agreement with this hospital. A neighbor hears the gunshot. The uh, EMTs arrive within 10 minutes of the call, and they transport her within another five minutes to Clickitat, and that's where this doctor sees her. At this point, things are working well as far as the golden hour works. 
There's still 45 minutes, so to speak, on this. But first act of providence is that the family practitioner realizes don't get the x-rays and recognize that his skill level, again, not an indictment, as we've said multiple times, not an indictment against rural hospitals or doctors of any of any caliber or specialty. He recognizes that this is above his ability level. And so if he has no personal experience, he just happened to know that Emmanuel and you in Portland has this MSTT. So he makes the call. Now, this happened in another sense. It wasn't an MSTT situation, but it was a doctor who was dealing with the T-bone collision uh, up in Northwest Oregon near Astoria. And he made the call and that was out of character as well. Right. So he says, you know what? Let me bring in the experts. You guys get the call. You mobilize. You fly to you fly to Clickitat Valley. Okay. It's a hundred air miles. How long does that take? It takes about 45 minutes, half an hour to 45 minutes. Okay. So at that point, we are now at the expiration of the golden hour to stop right. the bleeding. In the meantime, what has the on-ground personnel done to attempt to stop the bleeding? They couldn't. The patient was dying in front of them, where we're basically clinically dead. I mean, they started some IVs, and they put an endotracheal tube in or a windpipe so they could artificially bag valve mask or bag valve tube and breathe for her. But there was nothing, there was no external bleeding to stop. And uh, so basically, his his idea, and he made the correct diagnosis, the bullet had hit her heart, and then blood was leaking out of her heart into the sac surrounding the heart, and which was in turn impeding the heart's ability to fill. And uh, and he had no experience of opening the chest, uh, doing the pericardiotomy, which is incising the, the, the sac around the heart, letting the blood out, and he had no ability and no skills or no equipment to sit there and suture the heart. He recognized that you know, in, a, in a matter of minutes, right, you know, saying this was this is way beyond what he was used to. He wanted to give her a chance. And that's what I want. I want my doctor to try. So we've already established, you know, I guess miracle number one is that he makes the call. Miracle number two is the second phone call that they make to you as the helicopter is landing. And what was the message that you received as the helicopter is landing? Well, she had no pulses. She had no, basically no signs of life. He said, what should he, what should he do to help, help us? So I, I was in the helicopter at the time when the call came in, I said, move her to the operating room, put her on the OR table, take her clothes off, prep her chest, have her arms outstretched so that we can we can get to her chest and belly for for an operation and get all that set up but um and but do not try to do closed chest cardiac massage. Do not do CPR on her chest. She's got holes probably holes in her heart and if you're squeezing an empty heart, you're not going to accomplish anything and if there is any blood in the heart, you're going to make the holes bigger by you know forcibly compressing the heart between the sternum and the and the vertebral column and make matters worse i said just leave her be we'll be there we'll be there and and be ready to go if you do the do that in in anticipation and he did he organized it with his team to do it so topically considering um something you know we recently last year saw demar hamlin with the buffalo bills 
right. collapse on an NFL field. And they kept him alive for, I want to say it was nine plus minutes, right. giving him chest compressions. Right. Now, his heart was full, and that was how they maintained blood flow and circulation throughout his body. Right. Closed chest compressions give you roughly 30 to 40% at best of your normal output from your heart. By squeezing the heart between the sternum and the the vertebral column, you basically can get only 30 to 40% because the muscle basically uh, contracts concentrally, like a ball shrinking down. Chest compression is in two dimensions. Cardiac cardiac function is in it's basically in three dimensions in terms of, of the heart squeezing blood out of the heart into the aorta. So on the fly, literally, as you're in a helicopter, you make the call and say no chest compressions whatsoever because it doesn't serve any purpose. There's no blood in the heart to right. compress. You're actually going to cause more harm than good. So that's a pretty, I mean, that's a pretty amazing call. You know, thinking about it as the layperson, you say, well, that makes sense if there's no blood there. But seeing as you had not even been on site, knowing to do that, that probably gave her a chance to live as well because you were not causing further injury. Yeah. A lot of what what you learn over the years in medicine is from a bad outcome from a previous event. So there was a guy in San Diego where I was learning how to do heart surgery who was a stab wound of the heart. We talked about this before, stab wound of the heart. And uh, and he arrived, he was arrived clinically dead at, at UC San Diego. And basically we made again this, a similar decision. I always ask myself, why would you want to do chest compressions Basically, because somebody said so, when it's not going to do any good and could make things worse. Why would you want to do it? Because you got a hole in the heart. Why would you want to make the hole bigger? Right. And in fact, and plus the fact that more violent you compress the heart, the more you bruise the heart. So you're adding another injury to the heart on top of it. Yeah. I mean, because chest compressions are are not soft massage. They're pretty violent. Right, and many times they break the their, their ribs, uh, break the break the sternum, and many times they break the cartilages con- uh, con- connecting the ribs to the sternum. I mean, it's a, it's a it's a life saving procedure, but it comes with some morbidity. Okay, so we've established there's a couple of a couple of miracles, a couple of great choices that occur right out of the get go, and this right. is before you've ever put this is before you've ever set sight on this on this woman. Right, but then what I think. You know, there's a couple other techniques that you use, but then there's something there's something here that is um, is pretty incredible, at least in the medical field. When you show up, you show up with your MST team. You have with you a trauma resuscitative nurse. You have. uh, Can you list off the people you have on this team again? We have a trauma resuscitating nurse. Basically, she's going to be doing the helping with the massive transfusion and giving the blood that we brought with us in the helicopter to the patient on top of what the blood she patient was already getting from the local hospital with a limited blood bank. So we have that as a person. We had a trauma operating room nurse who is skilled in between trauma resuscitations and true, including heart surgery. All right. So she had that background. So th- those were the two f- main people that were there to help out. And uh, I guess that's the best way I can put it. Okay. So you have your team, you have your A squad yeah. with you. But I didn't, I didn't bring an assistant. I didn't bring a resident. I didn't bring an assistant. 
because I knew that uh, I could ask if I asked the family practitioner, I said, can you help? And if he'd follow, you know, listen to what I was asking him to do, then we that would that would be all I could ask for to have someone who actually would do what I was asking him to do. So this is where I was kind of leading to. And this is what's incredible is that, you know, first off, the general practitioner, the family practitioner to make the call is special in its own right. But now you're talking about something that we've talked about for the length of these episodes, and that is the importance of teamwork. Right. And, you know, I guess I'll fit it in here. There, There's a great movie I like about the 1980 U.S. hockey team. And Coach Herb Brooks is, you know, it's day one of tryouts and he's looking at stuff and they've got two weeks worth of practice and he hands a list over to his assistant coach and the assistant coach says, what's this? And he says, that's the team. And then the, the assistant coach reads it over and he goes, you're missing some of the best players. And, he, and Herb Brooks looks back at him and he goes, I'm not looking for the best players. I'm looking for the right players. And throughout these episodes that we've talked about, you were wanting people who were of the same ilk as you, people who valued the patient, people who knew how to work as a team, people who did not have an ego except for what their specialty was. But within the team, the team mattered more. So it's kind of the old sports analogy. The name on the front of the jersey is more important than the name on the back. Right. And in that way, at Click Attack Valley, you got a group of people who were ready and welcoming to be a part of that team. And they jumped right in line. That's miracle number three. Uh, pardon the pun on the movie title. But these people were ready to come along and assist in any way possible. Because one of the other things you've talked about is regardless of your expertise, regardless of the equipment that you're bringing, regardless of all the knowledge that you have, you can't come into a visiting hospital or an away game, so to speak, and come like a bull in a china shop and start ordering everybody around. You need these people to A, be on board and be welcoming, but you need to also have their assistance and be of assistance to them. So this is kind of a, a give and take where you're teaching them some techniques, but they're also coming alongside and providing you the assistance necessary for you to do things at a highly complicated level. Well, that's right. I mean, the the issue with the with the our scrub nurse or trauma or OR nurse is that we uh, I knew her well, and I said, now be sure to ask the the, the local OR nurse there. You know, is uh, that if it's okay, we fix the heart with with, our, with equipment that we brought. But can you do? You, we need some of your equipment. Can you? I said, do you have a Lebsche knife so we can open the chest vertically? They didn't. I expect them to have a sternal saw, which is what we normally use for heart surgery. And uh, and we didn't. I knew they wouldn't have the sutures, so we brought the sutures that we would need to fix the heart to do that. And so we had the two of them working as a team. The other part was basically getting the lab there because you need to have a person who's going to give you updates. If you can get samples of the patient's blood at periodic intervals, like 15, 10 or 15 minutes apart, what you need to have, I put in an arterial line in the femoral artery and, uh, and then the trauma resuscitation nurse could draw blood and hand it to the lab tech to be able to, be able to get their hematocrit or blood gas and a potassium 
to us so that we can get an idea where we were in terms of the resuscitation, because those are the three 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 elements that you need to have for a reasonably successful resuscitation. So the lab tech came into the operating room and I said, can you do this every 10 to 15 minutes? Give us those three samples and we give you the blood. He said, yes, I will do it. And I said, perfect. So that, that was that area nailed down. So we knew that something's going to happen. Now, and mind you, I, I hate to interrupt, but mind you, we're talking about all this technical stuff. But the fact of the matter is, is that there is a woman laying on a table who has blown a hole in her chest with a, with a shotgun. No, right, right, revolver. Oh, a revolver. She still maintains that there is a hole in her chest and a bullet lodged in her thoracic spine. Right. And you're still going through I mean, tediums of technicalities and how to get this done properly. And yet this person is still ostensibly dying on the table. Right. So let's not take away from the fact that there is all, all of these big words involved but yet there's still life-saving procedure that needs to be done. Yes. So one of the things is that basically is to open the chest. You can open the chest in two ways for one of these type of resuscitations. The standard has always been a left anterior lateral thoracotomy, where you start at the edge of the sternum on the left-hand side, and you make an incision going from next to the sternum all the way out to the armpit, practically. And then you spread the ribs apart, and then you, with, with a uh, with a spreader, rib spreader, and then you, it gives you the ability to sit there and do open heart massage. You know, squeeze the heart within the pericardium. The other one is to do what's called a median sternotomy. And the median sternotomy is that you make an incision starting what's called a suprasternal notch, which is a little notch at the base of your neck uh, in the sternum itself, and you go down vertically and, and divide the sternum into two halves. Equal halves, and then when that when you can do that, we normally do that with electric saw. But when you're going to a rural hospital, we don't always bring every instrument we normally use in heart surgery. We all we need is a Lebsche knife and a hammer, and we can drive a what's called a wedge type of knife down through the sternum, split the sternum in half that way, and we get trained in knowing how to do that. And this is where this is where two techniques that you use that are not totally normal end up becoming, at least as I've read and we've discussed, become the difference between life and death for this for this right. woman. Right. And the first one is using epicardial pacing wires, which you're going to have to explain because I don't even understand them now. And the other one is how you functioned with this medium sternotomy. Right. So you, as I say, you split the sternum in, into two halves, and then you put a retractor in, and that and that spreads the, the two halves of the sternum heart to to expose the heart, and that gives you about a five to six inch gap, and underneath that is where, is where the pericardium sits, and and the pericardium, as I said before, is a sac that surrounds the heart. With the two holes, we didn't, still didn't know it was two holes yet, but we with the heart basically the sac filled with blood compressing the heart we make an incision in the pericardium and that the blood flows out and it's dark venous blood and uh and then we see the heart is flaccid and it's not beating so then you say well where did the blood come from well then you look up and then you see a hole in the anterior portion of the right ventricle down near the down there it's what's called the anterior edge uh next to the diaphragm and then you look, pull the sternum pull the heart up a little bit and then you see the exit wound uh, coming from the bullet go, passing from the front to the diaphragmatic surface before it 
The bullet passes through the diaphragm, goes down into the abdomen. So now she has these two holes in the heart. And so the heart anterior and posterior, we have one in the front and one in the back. One, well, it's not completely in the back. It's it's inferiorly. So it's coming in at an angle. When you think of somebody holding a pistol in their hand, putting it on the right side of their chest and pulling the trigger, the bullet is going to go at, at an angle behind the sternum, down okay. through, through and the right ventricles there, down through the right anterior portion, of it, and then the what's called the diaphragmatic or the inferior surface of the, of the ventricle and goes through the diaphragm. Okay. So we confirm now that he has two holes in the heart. Heart's not beating. So the question is, some people would sit there and try to squeeze the heart. Well, you're squeezing an empty heart. And if you keep pouring blood in at large volumes, the blood's going to go out through the holes in the heart. You have to close the holes in the heart. Well, in heart surgery, we have what's called pledgeted sutures. That's a piece of felt with two needles and a, and a, a nylon suture or proline suture connecting the two needles. And you put that through the felt put it through the hole in the heart, uh, on each side of the hole in the heart, and then bring it out and then put another pledget down. And that sort of squeezes together in what's called a mattress suture to bring the edges of the bullet hole together to stop any leak. Sometimes you need just one suture like that, or sometimes you need two. But that you can right. do that with a good scrub nurse who understands how to load the sutures and give it to you on each needle holder. You can do that you know, in a matter of seconds and do the so we did to fix the anterior portion of the heart and then the inferior portion of the heart and then we had now no leaks from the heart so now we can basically fill the heart and start squeezing the heart manually to get the heart restarted the second issue thing comes about is you need to get basically stimulate the heart now to start to find to get some sort of a rhythm and one way is to inject epinephrine. Everybody knows what adrenaline is for epinephrine. It's an adrenal hormone. Well, you in heart surgery, you learned basically to inject epinephrine into what's called the aortic root. The aortic root is the portion of the aorta, just as it arises from the left ventricle in the heart. And before it makes a U-turn uh, in the upper portion of the chest, the three coronary arteries, the two coronary arteries come off of that aortic root. So by injecting the aortic with the epinephrine, you're given that epinephrine at three times the dosage that you would give if you were given it intravenously, because you're putting it into a vein, which then has to travel up the arm, for example, or the leg or the, in the body into the superior vena cava or inferior vena cava through the right ventricle, through the right atrium, right ventricle, left atrium, and left and before ever gets to the ever gets to the coronary arteries, which is where that counts in terms of restarting the heart. So we did that, and we went from basically went from flat line to a basically coarse v coarse v fib, which is uh, very very slow and methodical. Then to fine v fib, from then it would get to the point where we could basically uh, shock the patient, would defibrillate the patient, but we didn't have what's called internal paddles. So we would have to use the host hospital, the rural hospital, that they have an external defibrillator that they use for routine cardiac arrest. So we had the nurse anesthetist take the two paddles from, from the external defibrillator, put it on either side of the patient's flanks, and then when we shock the patient back into a, uh, to, to a rhythm. Now, to maintain the rhythm, we have to put in what's called pacing wires. And pacing wires are either 
You can put it through the vein, which takes about 10 minutes to get it into the right place, or you can put sew them directly on the surface of the heart. And we, again, routinely use external pacing wires following major heart surgery where we stop the heart for a period of time, either replace a valve or to uh, do coronary artery bypasses, things like that. And you hook that to a cable and then to a pulse generator, which is a portable electric battery system. And you hook that all up together. And then as soon as you defibrillate, you pace the heart. That was one of the things I learned in San Diego. You can't. So, I, I hate to stop your roll here because you're you're really going. But what I'm hearing is, is that you just jump started her heart with with uh, with uh, battery cables. Exactly. It's a form, but they're sterile. I mean, they're not. <laughs> I didn't say I didn't say you pull them off the nodes on a Ford. Right, <laughs> but, right. But very delicately, you just dump them in. You dump them in there on the on the on the face right. of the heart, and you just jumpstart them because you need an electrical impulse to create right. that rhythm. Now, the other thing that happened, we got the family practitioner. I said to him, you know, he was watching. This is the first open heart he'd ever seen in his life, and the first heart cardiac repair he'd ever seen in his life. I said, now we need you. If I said to push down on the aorta, abdominal aorta, just below the diaphragm so that we can divert all the blood when we're doing open heart massage to the upper portion of the uh, of the chest and to the brain uh, you know, and, uh, and to the coronary artery. We needed, we needed pressures. You're still in a situation where the heart is leaking at some level. No, we've closed it now, but we've basically, closed we've closed it now. And so I'm asking him, I said, can you... Uh, can you pr press down with your finger? And I showed him exactly where on the abdominal aorta and keep pushing it down until it's time we get a heartbeat back. And, and, and if we can get one back successfully, then we'll wait till it gets stronger and stronger. And then we'll basically release, slowly release the pressure, but we'll know that the heart is beginning to recover because if the heart doesn't recover, the, the, the situation is over. The game is over. Okay. And, and so he's pressing, he's pressing on a large blood, uh, on a large blood vessel. The biggest blood vessel going into the abdomen. This is the aorta. It's the continuation of the aorta, which starts in the chest and makes a U-turn, comes down to the abdomen. He's okay. pressing on that because so he's pressing on that. He's basically kinking the hose, right, to create enough pressure to get right. a pulse, and then you're going to slowly release that. Now, right. wh why go to a a digital kink as opposed to uh, what you had previously described as clamping the abdominal aorta. Well, because of anatomy lesson here, the aorta and the inferior vena cava lie behind a layer uh, of the per of, of a membrane called the peritoneum in the abdomen. So you can't just, you know, they're not lying side by side, two conduits, one vein, one venous, one arterial. You can't put a clamp on on that because you have to make an you have to make an incision between the two and make create room where you can get a clamp on either side of the vena cava, either side of the aorta. In this case, we only needed the aorta to to be clamped, but to get that, you have to do a little dissection, and that takes time. And so we know that saving time saves lives. If you mm -hmm. can do manual compression. Just like you do if you have somebody has arterial bleeding from an injury to your leg, you can do manual compression at the groin. You can slow the bleeding to almost down to negligible from to prevent blood loss. Well, this is why, how we figured out a way to save time. So, again, we go back to experience being right. necessary. Right. Okay. That's 
pretty heavy stuff that you just walked through like it was nothing. Um, obviously, the, the situation itself was quite more dire than how you let on. But now you have you have two different you have two different hospital staffs working in cahoots together as a team, functioning well and communicating and being there for each other, which in and of its own self is a win. But now you're actually making progress. You've taken internal paddles. We've used them externally. We've done we've done the medical version of jumper jumper cables. We've pressed on we've pressed on a blood vessel and kinked a hose in order to get a pulse. Okay, things are things are starting to move up. Can you take me through now? Uh, where do you actually get through the weeds on this, and the patient starts to actually recover in front of you? Well, once once we basically with 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 a paced rhythm of the heart, once the heart began to, you know, you, you watch the heart going from being flabby, flabby and not contracting at all. Now then with the epinephrine and with and the filling of the heart and what we call perfusion of blood flow through the coronaries, we're all of a sudden we're feeling tone beginning to come back into the heart muscle. The heart is filling. We're squeezing the heart basically, and we've got blood flow, blood leaving the aorta, going down to the coronary arteries, feeding the heart muscle, which again helps the heart to recover. And once the heart recovers, you you I mean it's it's like watching basically Phoenix rising from the ashes, if I can use that metaphor. It, it, you see the muscle getting stronger and stronger with each beat. And then, uh, you know, and then you begin to see the pupils come, be, come begin to react again. And the patient begins to spontaneously breathe. And all this is happening right in front of their OR nurse, their family practitioner, their nurse thesis. They're watching all this thing unfold. And, uh, and it's, as I say, it, it's extraordinary. But th- when, when it's successful, it's, uh, it's, I can't tell you, it's like, Scoring a home run, uh, basically, it's like hitting a home run when at the direst point of a baseball game, when there's no one out, bases are loaded, and you know, and all of a sudden everything comes goes your way. It's just phenomenal. And you hit this home run prior to ever getting her on the helicopter to bring her back, right? Well, we basically we made a few more adjustments. We contracted, we con- uh, controlled her what's called the acid base management of her bloodstream. So. We, we were able to give her some sodium bicarbonate to reverse the the met- metabolic acidosis that occurs, which is acid from lactic acidosis building up in the bloodstream. We get all that corrected. She begins to make urine, and now we're realizing that you know she's her other organs are beginning to function as well. Now the question is, wh- what do you do next? And the thinking of it is, is that following resuscitation. You can't sew the heart. You can sew the pericardium back together, but it, the heart is basically dilated a little bit, and you to you recreate create constriction if you sew the pericardium back together again. Same thing if you if you close the sternum, if you constrict the heart. You want the freshly resuscitated heart, which is dilated but contra- contracting. You want it to be able to not to be constricting. And we left the chest open, and then we took a what we call an Esmark dressing, which is a flexible plastic sterile dressing, and we sewed it to the edges of the skin and left her sternum open so that we could transport her back to a manual 
without having uh, you know, any ill effects of, of trying to compress her back or compress her heart again. So we were able to do do all that, and then the helicopter is waiting for us. We uh, we thanked everybody out there, you know, the, their role and what they did at the at Clickitat Valley Hospital. Thanked them for their efforts and helping us, and said ask them if there's anything that they thought we should have done that would have made it smoother for them. And they all were, you know, basically just ecstatic that we had gotten this far. So we put her on the helicopter and we fly back to we fly back to Emmanuel. And she's stable all the way back. I mean, we didn't have to use a lot of drugs or whatever to keep her heart going. So we took her to the operating room at Emanuel and carefully went through, took the Esmark dressing down, looked at everything again, make sure we had missed nothing, looked inside of her abdomen, saw that her, basically, there's nothing we needed to do with the liver that that was not bleeding at the time. So then um, we took her to the ICU and then still with her chest part left open with with the Esmark dressing on. And then she began to completely recover. Her brain began to function. She began moving her arms. Her kidneys were functioning well. Liver was recovering. And everything was getting better. So at that point, we were we got an electrocardiogram and showed that she had what's called an ejection fraction. 65% to 70% and the average human heart is normal. She had 55% ejections. That means the amount of blood that's ejected from the heart uh, that goes out into the aorta. So that's in the key number in cardiac surgery. She had 55%. So then we knew that we had, you know, that the heart had basically recovered that much and potentially go to 65% with a, with a little bit more time. So then we found out as, as she was beginning to move around that she could not move her legs. Then we got the x-rays done. And the and we took her to a CAT scan, and we, and we saw the x-rays that her spine had been injured, her portable x, uh, spine x-rays abdomen x-rays we saw that and then we did a cat scan and showed that her basically she had uh destruction of her uh, thoracic vertebrae and they saw the bullet sitting there in the middle of her spinal canal so that was not going to be fixable so i called the neurosurgeon and it basically asked him i said is there anything you need to do and he felt that you know by the nature of the bullet it was a 38 caliber that there need to be no stabilization of the spine required and that taking the bullet out would only ask, add risk to the situation. So uh, she made great recovery. We sent her off to rehabilitation after she there. She sat up in the chair with, with support and was able to eat and, you know, and have a conversation with people. And then we uh, and eventually she went to rehab and, uh, and went to social services and psychiatric care. And she returned to Goldendale with uh, support for her, for, for her paraplegia. And she re- she remained a paraplegic. After oh this. yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. Okay, just because of the location of the bullet in the, in the thoracic spine, right? Spinal okay. cord, right? Okay, so that, I mean that, that was that was unfixable, but I'm fairly certain she was she was at the end of things. I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna play psychologist or psychiatrist, but I'm assuming a new lease on life. She was pleased with. As opposed to as opposed to the alternative that existed the day that she shot the that she shot the weapon, right? You know, it, it, it is a fine line between depression and and basically uh, and malevolence. And I think that she got depressed about something and she made a rash decision and shot herself. 
But then when, when all the family and friends are gathered around her, life became worth living. And they supported her and helped her in a wheelchair and things like that. And so all of a sudden, she had people care about her again. And that That's made amazing. all the difference in her outlook. And actually, and you know, to switch topics a little bit, um, one of the OR nurses that was involved with this actually ended up uh, writing a case report. Right on this because of how because of how substantial the case was itself and her involvement in it. Right. So that was Jane Wick, one of our nurses from Emmanuel. She wrote in the American Operate, uh, Operating Room Nurses Journal uh, the, this article, including the names of the family practitioner and everybody else who was involved with it, because it truly this was a team effort, and she was very wise in and in, uh, in, including everybody in mentioning of this case report. That's impressive. Uh, again, you know, somebody brought from death's door right back to life. And and it all started with, you know, in, in summary, uh, the things that we had talked about previous, you know, it was an emergency call without with without an agreement between these two hospitals. You know, a, a surgeon who was ill prepared, but called the correct prepared team. Um, it was the call from your. It was the call from your helicopter saying, "Don't do chest compressions. You know, don't don't pump an empty heart." But then ultimately, I come back to this thing where we had talked before about this would be the ultimate in the teamwork edition of things, as you as you had stated multiple times. Right. These are people working cohesively towards an end goal, which was this person, which was this this woman who was in complete duress as she had already inflicted a gunshot wound upon herself, but then got to a place where she's at a hospital that doesn't have the resources, you bring them in, and then everyone works as a team to do this. And then uh, on top of it, a couple of other a couple of other techniques that wouldn't normally be used, whether it be the epicardial pacing wires, whether it be using the external defibrillators, you know, to to jumpstart things, Clamping versus compression, uh, digital compression of the aorta. And mind you, the whole time, the injury severity score gave her less than a 1% chance of survival. And so we, so then we go back even further and we go, what was your whole team? What was your whole team's mantra? The patient has value. You can always quit. It's possible if you're willing to try. It's possible if somebody makes the phone call and calls in somebody who knows more or has more capability. Again, not an indictment of self, not an indictment of an institution. It's saying that there can be better, possibly equipped people and facilities available. And then ultimately, within your team, and this is how you constructed it, and you use the word team so often, it's admirable, because it's not just you out there saving lives. It's the group of people you brought together because you weren't looking for the best players. You were looking for the right players. Right. I, I think that the, the, the real tribute came from the fact that when we wanted to formalize the relationship, well, the unlikely chance that we would be called back to Goldendale again to do an emergency surgery, we did get permission from the hospital and the medical staff to sit there and to have the credentialing and everything else like that approved. And uh, I would hope I guess so. it was so small, it didn't mean that much to the organ to the Washington Health Department, whatever, that we did this. 
but nevertheless, it, it was they wanted us to be able to come back. If they needed this in the future, they wanted us to come back and, and be able to do something like that for them. Good people breed good results. I mean, that's that's just yeah. fact. Yeah. Well, thank you again for sharing this one. Um, I mean, I, I just this is this is humongous. This is this is beyond my my understanding of what is capable in the medical field. Before I did cardiac surgical training, I I saw a lot of uh, disasters with left anterior thoracotomies. I, I can I can go through a litany of these over over the years. But when I went to San Diego and I learned at UC San Diego how to do emergency cardiac surgery as well as elective cardiac surgery, and a lot of the techniques I learned down there, I saw could be applicable to trauma. And fortunately, I had a chief of surgery, Joe Watley, who was chairman of the department of surgery. And he he ate this stuff up. A lot of people are just, in, in, you know, when academics are just only interested in the elective work, but he loved this stuff and he, he couldn't get enough of it. And so he kept encouraging me to develop these techniques that could be used for trauma. And he would say, make it a protocol, make it a protocol. And I would write the protocol up and that became the, the standard. Now, if other, other people might want, not want to follow it, but we have one that he and I agreed on and that's what we would use. And he asked me to call him every time we had uh, needed help in the operating room. He wanted to come in. He didn't want the other residents to come in. He wanted to come in because he wanted to ex experience it and see it. How often does that occur? I would assume not very. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just as we say in the very beginning of the episodes, radically altering the approach to trauma care by applying simple principles in profound ways. Well, I guess the thing, the, the humbling thing about all this is that um, it, a lot of people learn a, a set way of doing things, and they don't. They can't auto, uh, alter or modify it. And one of the little gems I picked up was from a guy who trained uh, in Iowa. They had a big heart center there, not necessarily a trauma center there, but it had a heart program there. And one of the one of the guys, uh, John Young, always told me. He said, "Do you make the game plan fit the patient, or the patient fit the game plan?" And that basically t told me volumes because if you're going to make a game plan that doesn't fit the patient the patient's not going to make it right but if you make the game plan fit the patient the patient has a chance and a lot of people know a set game plan but they can't they can't modify it to the circumstance i see i see this all the time in football and basketball they got the guy they can't adjust i don't mean it to be glib but uh, at least in the in the sports realm, and then what you're talking about, it's adapt or die. Exactly. If you're not willing to adapt, you're you're going to face a negative outcome. Well, but in sports, it, the, the basketball player doesn't die, but in trauma, the the patient dies. Yeah, that, I mean, again, that, that's why I tried to cover my own butt and say I'm not trying to be glib. Mm -hmm. it, it's just the the fact of the matter. It, you have to be adaptable and that, that that would be the number one that would be the number one rule in combat for elite for elite combat teams you have your set goal you're going from a to b but then when a, another threat presents itself you have to you have to avert your eyes and go towards that eliminate right. that threat before you turn back to your original goal and everything that you describe point blank is Okay, this popped up. We need to take care of this. What is the first thing that's going to kill you? And then you keep checking off that box. And then ultimately you get to a spot where, 
okay, have we have we gotten to a pay, have we gotten to a place where the patient is no longer critical, it is manageable. And you know, me and every other patient that's been to you, you know, we're thankful to God that you were there. So we'll close on that. Thank you again for another for another just gripping episode. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To learn more about this case study and these life-saving strategies, check out Dr. Long's upcoming book titled Flatline to Lifeline. As we close, we remind you to imagine a world where dead isn't actually dead. Flatline is not the end. A lifeline exists. Saving time saves lives. Thank you for joining us here on Flatline to Lifeline with Dr. Bill Long.